Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Our hearts are heavy this morning for the city of Buffalo as there's been another evil mass shooting. We know at Waterstone we have several families that I know personally grew up in Buffalo and are come from the Buffalo area and so we are deeply deeply saddened. Invite you to during this time even of listening to God's Word to be active in your mind in prayer praying for those who've lost loved ones, those who are grieving, the law enforcement community and uh, the churches in Buffalo. We pray to the Lord for these kinds of situations from the Psalms. We pray Psalm 11 this morning. In the Lord, I'm sorry. In the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, He hates with a passion. On the wicked He will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see His face. Amen. In her book, Amazing Grace, Kathleen Norris writes, the scariest story I know about the Bible is this. One Saturday night in a local steakhouse, my husband and I got to visiting with an old-timer, a tough, self-made man in the classic American sense. His grandparents had been dirt-poor immigrants, homesteading in western South Dakota, living in a sod house, barely making a living off the land in the early years. But the family had prospered, and he and his brothers had built up a large ranch of many thousand acres. This man had gotten where he was by being single-minded when it came to money, making as much of it as possible, and spending as little as he could, except when it came to his wife and kids. They always drove new cars. 
We knew him, I'll call him Arlo, as a taciturn man, but that night he was in a talkative mood, possibly because he had recently encountered a situation in which all the money in the world couldn't help him. He was facing chemotherapy for an advanced, probably terminal, cancer. Out of the blue, Arlo began talking about his grandfather, who had been a deeply religious man, or as Arlo put it, a damn good Presbyterian. His wedding present to Arlo and his bride had been a Bible, which he admitted he had admired mostly because it was an expensive gift bound in white leather with their names and date of their wedding set in gold lettering on the cover. I left it in its box and it ended up in our bedroom closet, Arlo told us. But, he said, for months afterward, every time we saw Grandpa, he would ask me how I liked that Bible. The wife had written a thank you note and we'd thanked him in person many times, but somehow he couldn't let it lie. He'd always ask about the Bible. Finally, Arlo grew curious as to why the old man kept after him about it. Well, he said, the joke was on me. I finally took that Bible out of the closet and I found that Granddad had placed a $20 bill at the beginning of the book of Genesis and at the beginning of every book in the damn thing. Over $1,300 in all. And he knew I'd never find it. We laughed over this with Arlo and he began talking about the interest he could have made on that money. 1300 bucks was a lot of money in them days, he said, shaking his head. And at the end of the story, I realized why Kathleen Norris had called this the scariest story about reading the Bible. Because if we don't read the Bible, we can miss out on a lot. For instance, the Bible is a worldwide phenomenon. There was an article several years ago in the New Yorker where it was called The Good Book Business and they described that every week in the bestseller list, uh, New York Times bestselling books, the Bible would be listed as the number one book every week, which is why they no longer list it on the bestseller list. This year alone, it's estimated that there will be half a billion dollars spent in America on Bibles. And the average American home already has 3.2 Bibles in it. It's a worldwide phenomenon in the sense that uh, not just in countries like America that have religious freedom, but in most every country around the world, there's an influence and an influx of Bibles. I have a good friend who for several years worked with an organization that smuggled Bibles into China. I saved a couple of his emails from those years. One of his emails went like this. April was a really crazy month. The first two weeks, there was a team of Australians here carrying in Bibles. You would expect that most people helping us with that would be young, fit, able-bodied men. This really isn't the case. One of them, Malcolm, was 55 years old, missing half his spine, had two surgical implants, one pumping morphine into his nerves constantly, the other eliminating the nerve signals for pain in his leg, which, if he turned up too high, made him incapable of walking. Yet there he is, carrying in Bibles with us. With a group a couple of months ago, there was an 81-year-old woman doing this. And there's some people here with families doing this who will take their six-year-old and infants on trips. 
carrying in Bibles. So it's not just us young guys, but rather pretty much anyone. I really have no idea how many Bibles were shipped this month. I haven't received the records yet, but probably in our city between five to 7,000 Bibles. The Bible has penetrated the deepest, darkest places of the planet. But I think the other thing about the Bible, why we can miss out by not reading it, is that it has a great capacity, these words from God, to turn and transform the human heart. I'll never forget reading Philip Yancey's book, The Bible Jesus Read, where he told the story. Well, I'll read it to you. In 1977, at the height of the Cold World, War. Anatoly Sharansky, a brilliant young mathematician and world-class chess player, was arrested by the KGB for his repeated attempts to emigrate to Israel. He spent 13 years inside the Soviet Gulag. From morning to evening, Sharansky read and memorized all 150 Psalms in Hebrew. What does this give me, he asked in a letter? Gradually, my feeling of great loss and sorrow changes to one of hope. Sharansky so cherished the book of Psalms that when guards took it away from him, he lay in the snow, refusing to move until they returned it. During those 13 years, his wife traveled around the world campaigning for his release. Accepting an honorary degree on his behalf, she told a university audience, in a lonely cell in Christopol prison, locked alone with the Psalms of David, my Anatoly finds expression for his innermost feelings in the outpourings of the King of Israel thousands of years ago. We miss out if we don't read the Bible. The Bible talks about it in its own terms in places like Psalm 1, where we read, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or sit in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on His law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do flourishes. Jesus Himself put it this way in Matthew chapter 4 when He said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out from the mouth of God. That verb tense that comes out is the present continual tense. That God is always talking. What do we risk missing out if we neglect and ignore the Bible and getting it into our lives, we miss out on God. Communion, fellowship, conversation with God. Today, as we continue in our series of the essentials, we're talking about those things that uh, in our lives can produce holiness and harmony and hope. These things that draw us together there's so much in our culture that's pulling us apart. These are the things that call us together. And today we're going to talk about Scripture, the Bible. We're going to talk about what the Bible is and how we can read it. So let's talk about what the Bible is. We um, understand that God, if you think about it, is a rather talkative being. 
It says throughout Scripture in places, in many places in the Psalms, Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows His handiwork again and again. And you get this idea that God is always talking through the things that He's made. He's talking. We can uh, watch this weekend as there'll be a lunar eclipse and go out tonight, stay up, and, and watch it and just say, my, oh my, there's got to be someone out there who's bigger and stronger than me that can make something like this happen. We uh, can learn about God talking. Acts 14 and 17 says that through the movements of history, we, we learn things about God. If nothing else, then that we cannot save ourselves. Uh, even in, you know, with mass shooting today, the war in Ukraine, we just continue to understand that we cannot save ourselves. God also speaks through us to, by one another. Uh, the Scripture says that we're made in God's image, which means that each of us is little God replicas walking around. And so if I were to watch you all day today and you were to watch me, we'd walk away saying, surely there's something I can learn about God from watching this person. It's just an amazing thing. We're all little reflections of God walking around, and we learn a lot. Our psychology, our sociology, we learn a ton just from watching one another. But the fact is that all of that great talking is not enough to get us, well, to the idea that there's some sort of something somewhere who's bigger than stronger than me. It needs to be focused. It needs to be specific revelation where God is disclosing Himself R for R, revelation for relationship, where in the Bible, God begins to say, yeah, I'm talking all the time, but what I really want you to hear is who my Son Jesus is. Everything in Scriptures points to Jesus. Everything. The Bible is one book about one person, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews puts it this way, that in past times, uh, Hebrews 1, uh, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who's the, who He has appointed heir of all things and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. The Son, the exact representation of God's being. In other words, God's intent in Scripture, this definitive biography of Jesus, is to say, if you really want to know who I am as God, look at Jesus. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the one and only full of grace and truth. But verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made Him known. That could be translated, He has put God into words. Jesus has put God into words. We want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Jesus Himself said it in John chapter 5. He was telling His pastors this, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. They are the very Scriptures that testify about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. There's a story of a longtime chaplain at Harvard and he used to have students come in. His name was David Buttrick. Students would come in and share you know, many of their troubles. They knew he was a chaplain, so often the conversations were spiritual. And they would often go something like this, you know, I've lost my faith 
here at college. I, you know, I hear all these things in that class, all these things in that class, and uh, they say God is this, they say God is that. I don't know who God is anymore. I, I, the God that I, that I thought I believed in, I've lost Him. And David Buttrick would always say, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in anymore. I probably don't believe in Him either. And then he would open up the Scriptures most often to the Gospel of John. And with these hungry and, and, and struggling students, they would read the Gospel of John together, just bits and pieces. But it's the point being that it's these, the Scriptures that give us the definitive biography of Jesus such that what God wants us to know in order to be in relationship with Him is Jesus. And if we know Jesus, we know God. So, that's what the Bible is, this definitive biography of Jesus. The process of how He got the Bible to us is rather interesting. We don't have a lot of time to dig into it. There's some great books, which in a moment I'll talk about, and that you can do more of your own research if you'd like to understand more of the background of the Bible. But I think I want to point to just a couple of verses that describe how God got this story to us. One is in Paul writing 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God-breathed is the idea that if you were up here standing next to me and you put your hand in front of my mouth, you would feel my speaking breath. I'm talking to you. The idea is the same in that when we read the Bible, God is talking to us. It's His breath. It's His words. If I could put it in 21st century parlance, Bible is God's intellectual property. His words. We talk about it this way, this theological definition, with a word called inspiration taken from this verse. Inspiration refers to the divine activity that surrounded every word of the books of the Bible so that the resulting autographs, of which we don't have any, Perfectly, by the way, I, don't, I think the reason we don't have any is because we'd build museums and worship them and lose sight of God and be very distracted. <laughs> that is thing, something we do well. Perfectly express the thoughts of God in their very wording in every part of the Bible. This Scripture is the words of God. And 2 Peter 1 talks about how God intended them. Uh, above all, you understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit. That idea of carried along is a picture of a little boat uh, or, or stick uh, thrown into a creek, a fast-moving creek, and carried along by the current. So the prophets... I don't even think most of them realized they were writing Scripture, especially in the New Testament. But what was really happening is that the Spirit was very involved. And the Spirit superintended. And uh, you know the words that they wrote, the Spirit owned, the Spirit shaped, and such that we have the words of, in, in Scripture are the words that God intended. And therefore, what we say of the Scriptures as a result of this cooperative process is that they are inerrant. Inerrant is the idea. Uh, we have that, that the Scripture in the original manuscripts and properly interpreted, not affirming anything that is misleading or contrary to fact when all the facts are known. It's reliable. The Scriptures do not err. They do not mislead us because they are the very 
breath talking words of God. We have a high view of Scripture. We believe that Scripture, the process was appointed and anointed by God such that the very words that we have are God's words so that we can know His Son, Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. Now, uh, I think most people today, um, they, they're interested in the, the history of the Bible. We're, we're going to put two books up here. One is by Craig Blomberg, who is a longtime professor at Denver Seminary, Can We Still Believe the Bible? And then my personal favorite is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by an Oxford scholar named Richard Bauckham, or Cambridge scholar, excuse me. And um, very much if you wanted to read about how the Scripture is the most documented uh, manuscript in the history of the world. There's no other ancient document like the Bible in terms of manuscript support. Where I really want to talk about for a few minutes is where I think it's a struggle with Scripture and, and where there's a lot of skepticism is not so much in the historical background of the Bible and how we got it, but in actually what the Bible says. That the Bible itself is its own worst enemy in terms of turning people into atheists. A.A. A. Milne, who uh, was the creator of Winnie the Pooh, and uh, he has this great quote, the Old Testament is responsible for more atheism, agnosticism, disbelief, call it what you will, than any book ever written. It has emptied more churches than all the counter attractions of cinema, motor bicycle, and golf course. Wow. And the point he's making is that as you read Scripture, there's so much there that's just like raw violence, the way women are treated, uh, the, the condoned slavery. We, I want to take just a, a moment and talk about two of the major challenges of the Scripture's plausibility. And what I want to make the point is that if we dig into it a little bit, I think we can understand more of the Bible's strategy for some of these tough issues. And that we, what we need to be careful of is not reading our full story that we have today into the developing story 2,000 years ago. Let's unpack that a little bit. When it comes to the idea of treatment of women in the Bible, we bumped into this a bit when we were preaching through Genesis. I remember Nick preaching the story of Jacob and uh, Esau, and well, Jacob and his wives, or and uh, Paul preached this sermon uh, masterful on Judah and Tamar. And one of the things that was mentioned there is just how terrible, terrible the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, treated their wives. They they pawned them off on other people. There was great like um, drama and tragedy in the relationships. Well. If you start digging into that a little bit, you come across a, a name that's pretty well known in especially Old Testament scholarship by the name of Robert Alter. He teaches at Cal Berkeley, and he wrote this great book called The Art of the Biblical Narrative. And what uh, Robert Alter makes the point is that in the surrounding nations of Israel in that day, there were the two Ps that caused a whole lot of trouble in society, polygamy and primogeniture. Polygamy, many wives. And that was the common practice of all the nations surrounding Israel, polygamy. And primogenitor was this idea, it was the economic system of the ancient world, where you wouldn't divide your estate among all the siblings. You would give your estate to the oldest son. Because if you divided your estate in those days, you'd become poor and weak. But if you kept everything together by passing it on to the one person, well, that would keep the lands, the money, the power all together. But scholars see in that idea of primogenitor actually the seedbed of slavery. So you look at Genesis and you say, okay, 
Does Genesis actually teach polygamy, support polygamy, endorse polygamy, and, and primogenitor? I would argue with Robert Alter at Cal Berkeley, no. You understand that what Genesis is doing is not supporting polygamy, but subverting it. By the way it subverts it is by showing it in all its pain and agony, gloom, despair, excessive misery. I mean, you read Genesis and you read about these polygamous marriages and you see how devastating it is emotionally, socially, psychologically, spiritually. It's just devastating on families and on relationships. And Genesis doesn't support it. It doesn't hide all the bad parts of it. It subverts it and says, if you want to be polygamous, this is where it's going to go. In the same way with primogenitor, when you preach through Genesis, read through it, you understand that God chooses who? The younger. The, uh, the older will serve the younger. Again and again, it's Genesis and God choosing the younger and, and kind of going against, bucking the culture, if you will, subverting the culture to say, no, we're going to bring the valleys up. We're going to bring the mountains down. We're going to level the playing field here within family. So uh, I think you dig in a little bit. The, the Bible is not condoning mistreatment of women, but rather in, with, from within its own culture, subverting it. I think you can make the same case with slavery, just, just briefly. Where Paul most directly speaks to the idea of slavery is in this little book called Philemon, who is a slave owner, and his slave Onesimus has run away. Paul gets in relationship with Onesimus. Onesimus becomes a helper to Paul. But Paul, knowing that Philemon was looking for Onesimus, he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. But he, he has this counsel for Philemon. He says, you know the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it's done in your heart. You know the freedom that you experience. You also know the relationship that you and I have. So I'm asking you, Philemon, to receive Onesimus back, and here's the key. You receive him back not as a slave, but as a brother. And in that word, Christianity has been on the front lines of every battle of abolition around the globe. Because we believe it's the gospel that changes hearts. It's the gospel, not cultural pressure, not government mandates, but the change of the human heart which the gospel produces that can set people free. So the Bible is not condoning slavery. It's subverting slavery again and again. So this Bible that we have, it's God's Word, His talking breath. He reveals Himself. He reveals His Son so that we can have relationship with God. And not only relationship with us, but we can also proclaim and demonstrate God's kingdom through his words. So let me quickly talk about three ways we should read the Bible. The first thing I want to mention is that we must strive to read the Bible with good interpretive skills. Interpretation means what the original author meant to convey to the original audience. That every time we open the Bible and read it, our goal first you know, I think the most dangerous statement you'll ever hear in a church, are you listening to this? The most dangerous statement you'll ever hear in a church is this. What this verse means to me is. Wow. Dangerous, right? 
That verse may apply to you. It may have a principle that you can learn from, but that verse was not written to you. We understand that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. Our goal in reading the Bible is always to understand what the original author was intending to say to the original audience because until we understand that, we cannot rightly apply it to our lives. A text cannot mean something to you that it never meant to the original audience. So we're careful and we work and we, as Paul says, study the Scriptures to, to, to rightly divide it, to, to understand what we're reading. It's historical kind that we always are mindful that there's a historical bridge between us and, and the original audience and there's a language bridge between us and the original audience. So let me just illustrate with two, two ways that why this is important. Uh, I'm going to put a picture up here of my family. Uh, those are my two sons and my wife getting tattoos. And uh, you can see the pained expressions on their faces. And the reason is because they suddenly realized as they were getting the tattoos that they have broken the Levitical laws. <laughs> Not really. You understand that in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 19, no tattoos, no mullets, no shrimp. I mean, what's going on? Well, actually, they're wincing because tattoos really hurt, which is the reason I don't have any. And um, they uh, weren't even thinking of the Levitical laws as they got tattoos. But why in the world would God say in Leviticus 19, no tattoos? Well, you do your homework, you do your research, you, you dig original author, original audience, and you understand that in that day, tattoos were a religious experience in other surrounding religions of Israel. That if you walked around with tattoos, it meant you were a member of that religious practice or that religious community, and it was uh, detrimental to your witness in that day where God wanted the people of Israel to stand out from those nations. So God is, says no tattoos not because He hates the ink. It's no tattoos because of what in that day it's said about you. Um, a modern, more modern-day illustration. Up until recently, in the state of Arizona, there was a law on the books. And this law read that uh, you cannot have a donkey in your bathtub after 7 o'clock at night. It's there. You can Google it. No donkeys in your bathtub after 7 o'clock. Well, you think, oh boy, what state of Arizona, I know, a little crazy down there. What's going on? Do your research, 1924, there was a flood in a town near Phoenix, and the, for whatever reason, a merchant had a donkey in a bathtub, probably trying to save it, and that bathtub floated a mile away from the village, and all the effort and time it took to find that donkey, people were so kind of worked up about it that they actually put a law in the books that said no donkeys in bathtubs after 7 o'clock. Now, again, to us, that's crazy. But if you lived there and then, you understood exactly what that law was supposed to prevent and why it was in the books. It's the same idea with Scripture. We're always mindful that we're digging for meaning, original author, original audience, understanding that, then there's room to bring it into our lives and apply it properly. Second thing I wanted to say about how to read the Bible is that we need to read it with an open heart, even a submissive heart. 
And so uh, we're going to put this up there at helmet, uh, with the submissive part. Uh, submission means if the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ, then the Bible must be authoritative in our lives and in our church. Authoritative. It's the idea that there's going to be parts of the Bible that actually deeply trouble us, that may even annoy us. That, uh, you know, I, I think speaking to skeptics and, uh, you know, skeptic myself at times, there are parts of the Bible that I'm pretty much convinced I'm never going to fully understand. It's just a rough go to cross that time bridge and that culture bridge and that language bridge. There's just parts, certain parts of the Scripture that are just going to always be challenging. There's another whole set of Scriptures, if I'm honest with you, that I don't really like. I don't, I'm not sure I like the God that's being revealed there. I'm not sure I like what it's asking of me. But I would submit to you, if whether you're a skeptic or whether you're like me, you just, there's parts that trouble you. I think that's a good thing. Let me explain. It's like in a friendship or in a marriage when you have two people and they have differing opinions at times. If that conflict is managed well, it's actually very healthy for the relationship. And that that kind of conflict can actually get you to deeper and better places in your relationship. The same thing is true with God in our reading of the Bible as we have His talking breath, this conversation with Him. There are parts of that that really trouble us, but I think if we can even admit to Him, okay, for, for me, honestly, sometimes it comes down to this, okay, you're God. I'm not. Okay. I'm suggesting that's healthy. If that is not the way you approach it. I, I never forgot Tim Keller writing in The Reason for God, this great book of his. He, he calls it The Stepford God. There was this remake of this movie, The Stepford Wives, a year back where the wives always said yes and did dutifully what their husband you know, asked them to do. It, and they turned out the great mystery of the town was they actually had implanted a computer chip into the wives. And so they weren't really wives. They were robots who always said yes. Sometimes I think that's what we want with God. We want a computer chip implanted into him so that it's always yes. And what you've done, if that's true, is it's no longer the true God. It's a God that you've made in your own image. And so if there's parts of the Scripture that really trouble you and annoy you, good. Good. Keep working. Keep staying with it. The other thing I would say is I, I often hear this about Scripture that, you know, what right does the, the Scripture have, does God have to get into my personal life, my sexual life, my money, my relationships? Well, I would suggest to you that God's interest in that is not because, you know, He's a mad Puritan. His interest in that is that He's kind of designed how these things work, sex, money, all that, he has put a moral fiber into the universe and that things should work certain ways. And when you resist those things, you're going to get splinters going against the grain. I, I never forget uh, Nicky Gumbel, who is the founder of the Alpha Course, told this story once when his kids were young. Uh, he was uh, a parent of an eight-year-old on a soccer team. And for whatever reason, the referee didn't show up. And uh, so they asked Nikki to be the referee for the 22 eight-year-olds trying to play soccer. And Nikki Gumbo, who's a trained lawyer, but not a trained soccer referee, um, 
didn't really know how to lay out the field. He didn't have a whistle, and he didn't know most of the rules. And so they started playing this game, and within about 10 minutes, the kids were yelling and screaming at each other. Three of them were lying on the field hurt from these groups of kids running into each other, and parents were screaming at Nicky Gumbel. And then the late referee finally showed up, got the field in order so they knew what's in, what's out, uh, enforced the rules and had a whistle. Now let me ask you a question. Were those kids more free when they didn't have any rules or when they knew where the rules were? See, when God says do to us, it's not a power move. It's a do-help-yourself move. This is how I've designed it. This is how it works. And you will have freedom and joy in the do. And when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. I've designed things to work this way, and if you don't abide by that way, it's going to hurt. God, for instance, does not say don't commit adultery because he's a killjoy. He says don't commit adultery because people get hurt. So we read with an open mind, with a trusting heart. And we are submissive as we read the Scriptures. The last thing is love means the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ intended for relationship. Then listening to the Bible is a practice of love. We talked about last week the Holy Spirit. One of the things He does is He opens our, our eyes to Scripture. He opens our heart to Scripture so that when we read this story of Jesus, we think, oh yes, there, He really lived and He really did this and He really has these promises and our hearts are drawn to Him. We're captured by His holiness and His beauty. The Spirit just opens that up to us and we believe that Jesus is for us. And so when we sit down to read Scripture as believers, Believers, this is what we don't want to miss out on. It's as if we're having a cup of coffee with the one who made us in the universe and deeply cares for us. I like to remind young couples that in a marriage, one of the most powerful tools you have is words. We all come into a marriage with accumulated verdicts of who we are, and often those have been said to us in our younger years by you know, people, our parents, our teachers, whatever, and they've been wounding words and words that really have hurt us. But most troublesome are those lies and words we believe about ourselves. And then you get married to this person, and this person now has this awesome power to reprogram and heal some of the ways you think about yourself and some of those wounds that have happened to you. And what's that power? What's the tool? Words. Spoken words over you again and again. And where do those words come from? They should come from the gospel. That the only opinion of you that counts is what Jesus thinks of you, and I choose that for you. And you speak words of forgiveness and love and sons and daughters of Jesus again and again. You see, what the Scripture is doing for us is giving us our identity as children of God and telling us there's this great story that's going on and we get to be a part of it. And we speak those words to each other again and again. But even more, when we open the Scriptures, God speaks those words of identity and story to us. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. 
Read understanding with wanting to interpret well. Read with a submissive heart, but read in love and let God's words heal you. Two quick things as we, uh, before we pray. Two tools. On the interpretation piece, I highly recommend thebibleproject.com. I use this every day. And it helps me understand why the book of Habakkuk was written, for instance, which we're going to study in a couple weeks. It gives all the background, the original author, the original audience, all this great work you can have on the website, or you can even from their website download the Reading Scripture app. And you can every day read a chapter of Scripture and have this great kind of knowledge all around it, and you'll understand what's going on. The other one I would recommend to you is called Lectio 365. Every day, it's this 10-minute practice of what the ancients called Lectio Divina, which they read a couple of verses of Scripture two times. In between, there's room for meditation and prayer. And, and I'm not exaggerating. I, look, I so look forward to this. It's like my coffee appointment with God every day. And in the summer, oh man, the lilacs uh, sitting outside in our patio, a cup of coffee, and God. Talking to God, it's a beautiful thing. So I would invite you to not miss out and read God's Word. Let's pray together this uh, responsive prayer. God, we acknowledge that Your Word comes to us divinely inspired, living, and active. We confess all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Together, may we spend time meditating on Your words and hearing Your voice. Come, Holy Spirit, to give us insight, understanding, and transformation into the life of Christ. Lord, your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Though we fail and falter, though we are broken by our sin, may we receive through your word the assurance of your great love mercy, and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we see your kingdom come, your will be done. May we hear you speak life into every situation. Let us come with open hearts, expecting to learn, expecting to change, and expecting your redemption and restoration. We pray in the holy and strong name of Jesus. Amen.